Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today we have a special episode. I'm very happy to have on the podcast Professor Daniela Mello from Boston University, where we're going to go into what is the status of the race for the presidential election in the United States. That's going to happen on the 3rd of November. And also some of the possible political and social scenarios once the results starting to come in. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for the month of November. I'm here with Daniela Mello. Daniela, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's great to have you here. And of course, at a very important time because the 3rd of November presidential elections on the United States is coming. And I asked Daniela to join me here to go a little bit into what, how do we get here and where can we go from here after the election? But before that, I must start with a curious note. And that is for our listeners that want to know how the sausage of podcasting is meeting. I first came across with Daniela's work on the Portuguese newspaper. And then I found out that she's Portuguese as I am. I found out also that she's a Fulbrighter as I am. And then I found out that she took her PhD at the University of Connecticut as I did. And Daniela, we actually found out that we overlapped for a couple of years. So maybe you were in the same line for coffee at the student union at UConn. <laughs> I imagine we probably were because coffee is the engine of graduate school, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's a small world after all. But I asked Daniela to join me because as I introduced her before, she's a lecturer of social sciences at Boston University and with a great interest in politics and in particular an interest also in this presidential election. But before that, tell us a little bit about yourself, Daniela. You got your PhD, you're teaching at Boston University. So tell us a little bit of your path until you get to this moment. Thank you. Um, I am a PhD in political science at the University of Connecticut, as you mentioned, our alma mater. I teach at Boston University, and my research focuses primarily on social movements, mobilization. Um, I'm, I have two subfields in political science. That's the way to think about it. I'm a comparative politics person, and I'm an international relations person. So I teach in both of those areas. But most of my writing has focused on social movements, activism, mobilization, women's movements in particular. And I've looked very hard at Portugal and Spain. Um, but I am also quite interested in U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, my last publication is about U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, and it's another area in which I teach. And like right now, I'm teaching a class in comparative politics. And next semester, I'll be teaching a class that is U.S. foreign policy since you know, the, the beginning of the Cold War. I, I, I get to cover a wide range of topics in my classroom and I like it like that. <laughs> I imagine that not only because of your academic environment, but also as someone that is paying close attention to what's going on, you are very interested in this particular moment in American poli political history. So how is it for you living in the United States? How are you feeling this, this quite intense moment? Uh, intense is uh, it's a good word <laughs> to describe it. Tense is also another good word to describe the current moment in the United States. Um, the chickens have come to roost, I think, on, on a number of trajectories that both the right and the left have been on and a number of tensions that have existed for many decades and many generations in American society. 
So it, it's very typical in the U.S. to compare this juncture with 1968, which was another like really tense, critical juncture. Lots of mobilization on the streets, lots of polarization. Um, I, I mean, some of the comparison bears, of course, but there's also very important differences, I think, about what's happening right now. And I would say to some extent, we're having even more polarization than we had in 1968. So it will be interesting to see how we, uh, how we move forward from this moment. All right, let's get into it then. Uh, one thing that we're going to talk about, it's the two parties, of course. Now, let's start with the Republican Party. Daniela, is it fair to say that there was a, re a realignment in the Republican Party, and there's this, this expression that it's used often, that it's not your dad's GOP anymore. A lot of signs that show that the GOP totally collapsed and it's now Trump party. Of course, there are the never Trumpers that are on the sidelines. So what is your take on this? What happened to the Republican Party from the Reaganites, from George Bush, to now what we see during the Trump uh, era? Well, I told you earlier that I teach social movements and I study social movements. So I'm going to give you perhaps a very mobilization focused perspective on this. But I think there's a lot of truth to it. And it's a good it's a good way to to analyze big change um, and how it has affected both parties. I, you know, I'd probably take our story. We can go really far. I mean, we can certainly go to Reagan. We can go back to 1968 even. Right. But um, I, I'm going to. I'm going to go to 2008 and McCain and Palin, right? Mm -hmm. So Sarah Palin was a precursor to a lot of the narrative that you saw later with the Tea Party and some of the narrative that you see with President Trump as well, right? In many ways, she was the, the first really public figure to, to voice some of or, or to manifest the direction that that the party would would go into but I, I would go to 2008 because the great recession i think is a critical juncture in this realignment that we're seeing both on the right and on the left so the great recession sets in motion a number of mobilizations <laughs> both inside the party and across the country that i think are redefining um the base, the party base for each one of the parties. And for the Republican Party, since we're speaking about the Republicans first, there was a demoralizing defeat in the 2008 elections, right? And that demoralizing defeat sort of led to, as it often does, uh, a, a reassessment of where we are, who do we appeal to, what can we do? That opened the door for several strands uh, that had already, that always existed for a long time in, in, in American conservatism to come together, right? And to start, uh, again, reassessing where the party could go and who the party could appeal to, how the party could continue to be a viable political party, right, after the defeat to Obama. And I think the Tea Party um, was an, an incarnation of some of these strands, right? Because the rise of the Tea Party, and by 2010, right, within two years, the Tea Party um, is being amplified at a national level as this grassroots movement that is going to change conservatism, right? But you can really see within the Tea Party some of those those strands of American conservatism that had always been there, but had been sort of in the background, right, rather than the foreground. Anger at, for you know, really real anger at federal programs like Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, right? Um, and the reaction during the Great Recession 
to the bailouts and to the Affordable Care Act uh, was that, you know, we don't want a nanny state, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, That whole narrative that Americans should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that we don't want handouts, right? While at the same time, which is perhaps the most paradoxical aspect of, of Tea Party ideology, if we can speak of it like that, saying that we strongly support Social Security, we want our Social Security, we want our Medicare, but, and here's the big but, only for those who deserve it, the true hardworking Americans. And this government, the Obama government, is giving it to undeserving people, right? So that's a big part of that narrative. Mm -hmm. And you add to that anxieties about racial change, ethnic change in America, generational anxieties about how America is changing, right? And suddenly you have this grassroots mobilization that is, you know, trying to influence the direction of the party. And the party sort of jumps on that bandwagon because the party is also in search of a direction, right? After 2008, where do we go from here? Yeah, but the question is, did they, did they went too far? And that is, I totally agree with you with the analysis of the Tea Party, but then you have birtherism and then you have Pizzagate mm-hmm. and now you have QAnon. And not too long ago, I saw a couple of articles on New York Times that Republicans are embracing QAnon. Actually, we saw a candidate to to a senatorial position in Georgia campaigning with a candidate for the House of Representatives that she's a QAnon. I think that perhaps they were too pragmatic, right? And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell may have felt that he could control (laughs) the direction of things, um, Mitch McConnell as the Senate mm-hmm. leader of um, uh, of the Republicans and 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 its most well known figure, perhaps. I think the ship sailed, right? And and they realized the ship sailed. It, it seemed pretty clear to me in the last election that um, the Republican Party per se did not believe that Trump was going to be able to be the candidate that was actually going to go to the presidency. But in fact, they underestimated Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. Because once Trump was with those other 16 or 17 candidates on that stage, he was able to to capture the cameras, to capture the attention. And he was really capable to galvanize not just the base of supporters of what had been the, the Tea Party, um, the birtherists, which was a very small part of the Tea Party, but one that Trump himself had latched onto. I think we all remember Trump demanding, right, before he was a candidate, that uh, that Obama um, present his birth certificate, right? This is what I'm talking about when I talk about the birtherists. So this very nativist um, approach that speaks to the racial and ethnic tensions with the United States and to the generational tensions that this big shift is having. Um, Trump really latches onto that and and that propels him right to the ticket. But I think that surprised even we can try to rewrite history as much as we want, but it was very clear that the Republican Party was itself quite surprised (laughs) that Trump is the one that, you know, they ended up with. True, uh, Daniela, but they, as you mentioned, and correctly so, they didn't rein in him. The GOP now, it's the Donald Trump party. And even if he loses the election, that core constituency will be there for someone to, to grab onto them and, and keep continuing their, their path forward. Right. I mean, it will be interesting to see what the party decides to do if they lose the election now, right? If Trump mm-hmm. wins the election, 
right? There is, there are two or three paths to victory for Trump for this election. So if Trump does win the election, um, that might come to fruition even more. I mean, the the Republican Party may solidify as Trump base, right? The evangelicals, the Tea mm-hmm. Party movement, and the voters that shifted from Democrat to Trump supporters, right? Um, the working class voters of places like Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, um, that always voted Democrat and that suddenly felt quite betrayed <laughs> by the platform of the Democratic Party, right? Um, and decided to go with the anti-globalist tone of um, and promises of, of the Trump administration. So I think that if Trump wins, that can consolidate, right, as as the base, the new base of the um, of the Republican Party. But if Trump loses, there's another opening to perhaps, you know, try to shift and change the message of the party and change the appeal of the party. Italy. Getting into a, a little more detail now, and this is really for all the geeks that follow American politics as close <laughs> as we do. But I know that there are some in our audience. So and just to finish the, this part with the Republicans, so imagine that we do have a, a, a Biden administration, the GOP needs to rebuild. We have one faction that we can imagine, the, the Rubios, the Cruzes, the Sasses, the Ben Sass from uh, Nebraska, Cruz from Texas, of course, Marco Rubio from Florida. And then we have the mm-hmm. Josh Always, the Tom Cottons, the Trump, the Trump Jr., even, who knows, Tucker Carlson from Fox News. How, do you have a crystal ball to tell us that which one of these factions then will will take over the party? So the answer is no. There There is no crystal ball that can tell us exactly the direction that the party is go, going to go in. But if the party does lose the election, um, they will have an opportunity to have an internal debate right, about what direction to follow. And that internal debate is going to be similar to the debate that they were having internally, though it was a very public internal debate between 2008 and 2010. Um, if you remember Eric Canton and the group that he uh, was a part of having you know, great discussions about what went wrong and how do we move from here. And you know, those discussions led the party away from, it, like the Republican Party of George W. Bush wanted to reform immigration, right? The Republican Party of Trump um, wants to treat immigration as the great evil, right, happening to America. Uh, I, I don't think I'm I'm being hyperbolic about that, right? I mean, the immigrant has been really categorized as, especially the undocumented immigrant, as as an evil that we want to avoid, something that we want to stop at all costs. You know, the source of lots of the domestic wrongs. Uh, that happened to America and to the American worker over the past generations. So I think that if the Republican Party loses the election, it's going to be another come to Jesus moment. <laughs> it's going, literally. It's all, perhaps literally. <laughs> Certainly for, you know, certain certain factions of the party. But, you know, the Republican Party knows that it needs the evangelical base. And the evangelical base is really the rock behind Trump's support. Mm-hmm. Right. So they will be asking, how do we keep the, the evangelicals in? How do we keep this new working class voters in? Right. But how do we move perhaps past the last the, the least palatable aspects of what Trumpism was all about? 
But if Trump wins, it's coming back to my earlier point, um, then we might see the consolidation of some of this narrative as part of the new platform of the Republican Party moving forward. There is a lot of conversation in, in the media that the country is trending a little more liberal regarding you know popular vote and and polls and then the the democratic party was also trending a little more into economic populism with bernie sanders with elizabeth warren and now alexandra ocasio-cortez as the face of that change to the left of the democratic party but biden won and uh it's more of a centrist kind of approach so what is your opinion then the, the, the equilibrium of, of power that is going on in the Democratic Party right now? That's a really interesting question. Um, you made me think immediately of the line that Biden threw at Trump the other day uh, during the debate. This guy thinks he's running against a different guy, if you remember that, because Trump was trying to characterize him as AOC and the three, right? There's what he's calling the radical left, the radical wing of the party, uh, the word radical is used <laughs> and abused very much uh, on, on this side of the Atlantic. But to come to your question, I think that very, like the Great Recession ended up having this cataclysmic, uh, being a cataclysmic moment for American politics at multiple levels. And it was also true for the left, right? Because a new left that or a new left-wing voter, a new generation of voter that felt in many ways betrayed by neoliberal economic policies, right? And all of their failures. And all of those failures of the neoliberal economic policies of the 1990s, again, really came to roost <laughs> between 2008 and, say, 2012, 13. Um, so it was, it was really glaring that that wasn't working for the average American person, right? That uh, that people felt hurt by globalization. This was true on both sides, right? I mean, that's why Trump's appeal, anti-globalist appeal is also so so resonant with, um, with, with his voters. Um, so coming back to this idea, on the left, there was also this moment of saying, you know, the 1990s, the, the neoliberal economic policies, the... Um, the deregulation of media, right, kind of intersects here as well, that allows, you know, big corporate um, media like Fox News to suddenly consolidate a lot of power to become um, a big player in terms of, you know, weaving a conservative narrative for the country as well. But, the, you know, we're talking about Fox News, we're also talking about CNN, right? So we have these two strands going on at the same time. And then we get to the Great Recession, and people are losing their homes, people are losing their job, and globalization doesn't seem to be working for almost anyone, right? And on the right, we have sort of that Tea Party reaction, right, that brought those many strands together. But on the left, we have the Occupy Wall Street moment, right? And Occupy Wall Street, for all of the failures that sometimes we like to point at it, right? What was the movement about? Why didn't they come with a, up with a platform? All of those things. It had a very, very strong impact in changing the narrative. I mean, I remember um, when in the 2012 election, just how much the narrative of the 1% versus the 99% had an impact on that election, right? Um, 
so anyway, this is just to say that Occupy Wall Street really galvanizes the left in a new way, right? And especially younger leftist people. There's also a generational difference going on here, right? Suddenly, there's an entire generation on the left, and AOC is a great representative of that, right? They were all born after the Cold War, or they have zero memory of the Cold War. So that entire story about, you know, being anti-communist, socialism being communism, I mean, it's not resonant with people under 40. It's certainly not resonant with people under 30, right? The big issues that they care about is how do we fix, (laughs) how do we fix the, the, the problems of neoliberal globalization? And how do we make this work for the average person again? So there's a big, big shift. And we're seeing that as well, right? We're seeing that right now. We're seeing that in um, in this election, and we are seeing this in the rise of the progressive wing of the party. So that I, I guess the argument I'm making is that without Occupy Wall Street, right, we don't have the window of opportunity, the normalization of talking about inequality again within the left. Like inequality becomes one of the one of the most important issues that is mobilizing the prog- the progressive younger wing of the party and it's not going to go away and of course environmentalism is another one of those but those are issues that are deeply connected in the minds of progressives and also social justice i will add that third one yeah social justice environmentalism inequality right but they're completely interconnected in the mind of the pro- progressive you know, voter uh, on the left. It's one feeds into the other. The other thing that I would add, and I was just listening to a podcast uh, not too long ago because of that, and that is the black vote, it still is a great, great force inside the Democratic Party because you had all those progressive candidates and at the same time you have Biden securing a coalition inside the Democratic Party, that it, it, it still is the coalition that needs to be uh, achieved to have power inside the Democratic Party. Uh, Daniela, in this um, couple of minutes that we have left for our conversation, I want to have your thoughts on something that I'm very scared, and I'm sure some of our listeners that follow this closely, and even if they don't follow closely, we know uh, we know the dangers associated with the elections of the third and then the results as they trickle down on the third and the fourth and the fifth. And I was just looking at Alex Wagner. She had a piece on The Atlantic uh, about how can this turn violent? And there are groups like the mm-hmm. third, the 3%, the Proud Boys, the Oath Takers. These people are saying that they are ready to go to the streets and to even involved in violence and, and, and gun-related violence. And one thing, and I'm going to throw it to you next, Daniela, but one thing that I was really, really made my heart stop in my chest was to listen to one of those members of one of those militia groups, the 3% in this particular, and he was telling Alex Wagner, if Biden wins, the election was rigged. And of course, Alex Wagner was like, so what happens if Donald Trump wins? Well, if Donald Trump wins, then the election was fair. So this this is the kind of self-contained ideology that I'm very, very worried. How can we break this? How do you see those very tense 
an intense days after the elections coming and especially for someone that lives in America like you do? Uh, I too, I am very concerned about the days after the election. I and anyone who's, you know, paying attention to what's to, to the narratives from different factions in the United States. This is an unusual election in the United States because we have a president who has openly said more than once that if he loses, there was fraud. And I'd even say, though let the me party you. has, I would say more. He says the only way I lose if it is if there is fraud. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so this is a problematic <laughs> narrative for for a number of ways, for a number of reasons, right? I mean, it's problematic because. It delegitimizes the electoral process, right? It erodes trust in political institutions and on the election, and it potentially mobilizes groups, right? That, well, mobilizes groups for action and potentially for violent action after the election. So I, it's very problematic that the president of the United States would adhere to this type of narrative during this particular tense moment in American society. So, you know, this could play out a number of ways. I think that if it becomes very, very clear on the night of the election that this is going to be an overwhelming win for Biden, then some of that may deflate, right? I mean, if Biden, for instance, takes Texas, or if Biden takes Florida, and that becomes kind of clear within the first 24 hours, um, after the ballots are cast and, and are being counted, then some of this may deflate. The other alternative that we've been all reading and listening to about is, you know, that Trump might be leading in some of the key states, in some, in some of the purple states. And if he's leading on election night, it doesn't mean that he's going to win those states because a lot of the states will have a protracted vote counting, right? And we know that... Democratic voters are more likely to be voting by mail than Republican voters. But that will give a window of opportunities of several days, maybe even weeks, for Trump to claim victory and to fan the flames of these conspiracies about electoral fraud. And that's very problematic because the United States has always had a problem with armed militia groups. I mean, this is something that the FBI has kept on its radar for decades, right? And and that track that the FBI tracks quite closely. We've always had neo-Nazi groups, um, armed militias in, in various parts of the state. So what we've seen over the past few months raises a few concerning flags, right? Um, Kenosha and the events of Kenosha in which um, using social media, a number of armed individuals from different states descended upon Kenosha to um, defend the property, right? Defend property uh, in Kenosha against the, the the radical protesters, right? Who are protesting in the streets. We have the the, the plans to kidnap and and to and to lead a coup of the state government in Michigan and kidnap the governor. I mean, this 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 these are serious issues, right? Um, they're serious red flags. But what they seem to point at is that if, if President Trump continues to insist on the topic of electoral fraud, um, 
there are certainly certain groups that are willing to bear arms to defend the Trump presidency, mm-hmm. whether or not Trump is telling them to do it. And and that much has become clear over the past few months. And I, I am very concerned about that. Yeah. And, and we don't have the time to go into in this podcast. But then there's the Department of Justice under William Barr that is also can play a very a disruptive role. And, and of then course, of course. Go ahead. Go ahead, Danielle. I mean, we have the possibility of seeing Florida 2000, you know, times 100. <laughs> yes, true. Um, and, and suddenly seeing this being battled in the courts. And I think this administration is also quite aware of that. So uh, we're, run out, we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask you to please come back after the election so that we can. Go, and after the elections, maybe <laughs> maybe it has to be in <laughs> February, but we'll see. But uh, as as things settle down and, and let's hope maybe against hope, but let's hope that we don't have those kinds of um, events going on in the United States. Let's hope that there's a transition of power, that transition is peaceful, and that as the Democratic candidate has been trying to say for some time now, and I cannot agree with him more, um, it is the United States of America. People need to work together. People need to live together. People live to, need to share their country. and stop with yeah. this uh, division and polarization. I'm going to give you the last word. And I, well, I will add this to you I, and, and to our last point in that I, I am fully with you. I certainly hope that we get past this very difficult moment and we start looking forward to the future. <laughs> First, um, I mean, if we, we need to normalize and we need to deflate um, the levels of polarization. But if if the worst scenario uh, plays out and President Trump is indeed claiming electoral fraud if he loses the election, I think the positioning of the Republican Party and the leaders of the Republican Party are, is going to be really, really critical here, right? We need the Republican Party to step mm-hmm. up, right, and defend the democratic institutions and, and, and defend uh, the election. So... I think that the positioning of the Republican Party here is going to be even more important than the positioning of the Democratic Party, which we can predict. We could be talking for hours, but uh, we ran out of time on this podcast. But I'm definitely going to ask you to come back because we didn't even went into the international relations. So what is the future of the connection between United States and Europe? And I would like to have uh, your opinion on that. I'm going to put on the show notes not only uh, how to get to know Danielle a little bit, her bio, her academic bio, but also some of the papers that you published. And I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And I hope to have you back soon. Thank you. This was delightful. Thank you for having me. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this first week of November. On the 5th of November in Bulgaria, we have Western Balkans Beyond 2020, Actions and Decisions in Times of Pandemic. The year 2020 was very important for the Western Balkans as the enlargement is back on the EU agenda. 
However, the COVID-19 not only hit the Western Balkans countries in a period of re-acceleration of economic activity, but also put an enormous pressure on the already fragile health system in place and also had an impact on the state of the democracy in the region. This event aims to represent a great opportunity to hear the perspective of Western Balkan states on the further development and the accession process, also as the elaboration of regionally relevant issues and policies. And then on the 7th of November, we have in Tallinn, Estonia, coping with climate change risks an opportunity for liberal economies and society. Climate change has been an unstoppable process that has taken place for many years due to increased emission from societal and economical development. One of the biggest challenges today is to find solutions to lessen climate change or even better, trying to stop it. This event consists of a two-part. There is a keynote speech from a European Commissioner Simpson and then an open panel with politicians and experts. The outcome of the event will also be a press release that includes three new ideas to fight climate change. We'll have other cooperational partners from other European countries and also the involvement of young Baltic liberals as an audience, which means that new ideas and solutions could be spread around Europe, including LIMEC and Renew Europe. To know more about this event, just go to our webpage liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Liberal Forum.